Section 24 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Kenny. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 13, Part 1. Of vows, the miserable entanglements caused by vowing rashly. This chapter consists of two parts. One, of vows in general, sections 1 to 8. Two, of monastic vows, and especially the vow of celibacy, sections 8 to 21. Sections. One, some general principles with regard to the nature of vows, superstitious errors not only of the heathen, but of Christians in regard to vows. Two, three points to be considered with regards to vows. First, to whom the vow is made, that is, to God, nothing to be vowed to him but what he himself requires. Three, second, who we are that vow, we must measure our strength and have regard to our calling. Fearful errors of the popish clergy by not attending to this, their vow of celibacy. Four, third point to be attended to, namely, the intention with which the vow is made four ends in vowing. Two of them refer to the past, and two to the future, examples in use of the former class. Five, end of vows which refer to the future. Six, the doctrine of vows in general, common vow of Christians in baptism, etc. This vow, sacred and salutary, particular vows, how to be tested. Seven, great prevalence of superstition with regard to vows. Eight, vows of monks, Contrast between ancient and modern monasticism. 9. Portraiture of the ancient monks by Augustine. 10. Degeneracy of modern monks. 1. Inconsiderate rigor. 2. Idleness. 3. False boast of perfection. 11. This idea of monastic perfection refuted. 12. Arguments for monastic perfection. Uh, first argument answered. 13. Second argument answered. 14. Absurdity of representing the monastic profession as a second baptism. 15. Corrupt manners of monks. 16. Some defects in ancient monasticism. 17. General refutation of monastic vows. 18. Refutation continued. 19. Refutation continued. 20. Do such vows of celibacy bind the conscience? This question answered. 21. Those who abandon the monastic profession for an honest living, unjustly accused of breaking their faith. 1. It is indeed deplorable that the Church, whose freedom was purchased by the inestimable price of Christ's blood, should have been thus oppressed by a cruel tyranny, and almost buried under a huge mass of traditions. But, at the same time, the private infatuation of each individual shows that not without just cause has so much power been given from above to Satan and his ministers. It was not enough to neglect the command of Christ and bear any burdens which false teachers might please to impose, but each individual behoved to have his own peculiar burdens, and thus sink deeper by digging his own cavern. This has been the result when men set about devising vows by which a stronger and closer obligation might be added to common ties. Having already shown that the worship of God was vitiated by the audacity of those who, under the name of pastors, domineered in the church, 
when they ensnared miserable souls by their iniquitous laws. It will not be out of place here to advert to a kindred evil, to make it appear that the world, in accordance with its depraved disposition, has always thrown every possible obstacle in the way of the helps by which it ought to have been brought to God. Moreover, that the very grievous mischief introduced by such vows may be more apparent, let the reader attend to the principles formerly laid down. First, we showed, Book 2, Chapter 8, Section 5, that everything requisite for the ordering of a pious and holy life is comprehended in the law. Secondly, we show that the Lord, the better to dissuade us from devising new works, included the whole of righteousness in simple obedience to his will. If these positions are true, it is easy to see that all fictitious worship which we ourselves devise for the purpose of serving God is not in the least degree acceptable to him, how pleasing soever it may be to us. And, unquestionably, in many passages the Lord not only openly rejects but grievously abhors such worship. Hence arises a doubt with regard to vows which are made without any express authority from the word of God. In what light are they to be viewed? Can they be duly made by Christian men? And to what extent are they binding? What is called a promise among men is a vow and made to God. Now, we promise to men either things which we think will be acceptable to them, or things which we in duty owe them. Much more careful, therefore, ought we to be in vows which are directed to God, with whom we ought to act with the greatest seriousness. Here superstition has in all ages strangely prevailed. Men at once, without judgment and without choice, vowing to God whatever came into their minds or even rose to their lips. Hence the foolish vows, nay, monstrous absurdities, by which the heathen insolently sported with their gods. Would that Christians had not imitated them in their audacity. Nothing, indeed, could be less becoming. But it is obvious that for some ages nothing has been more usual than this misconduct, the whole body of the people everywhere despising the law of God, and burning with an insane zeal of vowing according to any dreaming notion which they had formed. I have no wish to exaggerate invidiously or particularize the many grievous sins which have here been committed, but it seemed right to advert to it in passing, that it may the better appear that when we treat of vows, we are not by any means discussing a superfluous question. 2. If we would avoid error in deciding what vows are legitimate, and what preposterous, three things must be attended to. That is, who he is to whom the vow is made, who we are that make it, and lastly, with what intention we make it. In regard to the first, we should consider that we have to do with God, whom our obedience so delights, that he abominates all will worship, how specious and splendid soever be in the eyes of men. Colossians 2.23 If all will worship which we devise without authority is abomination to God, it follows that no worship can be acceptable to him save that which is approved by his word. Therefore, we must not arrogate such license to ourselves as to presume to vow anything to God without evidence of the estimation in which he holds it. For the doctrine of Paul, that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14.23 While it extends to all actions of every kind, certainly applies with peculiar force 
in the case where the thought is immediately turned towards God. Nay, if in the minutest matters, Paul was then speaking of the distinction of meats, we err or fall, where the sure light of faith shines not before us, how much more modesty ought we to use when we attempt a matter of the greatest weight? For in nothing ought we to be more serious than in the duties of religion. In vows, then, our first precaution must be never to proceed to make any vow without having previously determined in our conscience to attempt nothing rashly. And we shall be safe from the danger of rashness when we have God going before and, as it were, dictating from his word what is good and what is useless. 3. The second point which we have mentioned as requiring consideration is implied, that we measure our strength, that we attend to our vocation so as not to neglect the blessing of liberty which God has conferred upon us. For he who vows what is not within his means, or is at variance with his calling, is rash, while he who contemns the beneficence of God in making him lord of all things is ungrateful. When I speak thus, I mean not that anything is so placed in our hand that, leaning on our own strength, we may promise it to God. For in the council of Arusica, it was most truly decreed that nothing is duly vowed to God save what we have received from his hand, since all things which are offered to him are merely his gifts. But seeing that some things are given to us by the goodness of God, and others withheld by his justice, Every man should have respect to the measure of grace bestowed on him, as Paul enjoins, Romans 12, 3, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All that I mean here is that your vows should be adapted to the measure which God by his gifts prescribes to you, lest by attempting more than he permits, you arrogate too much to yourself and fall headlong. For example, when the assassins of whom mention is made in the Acts vowed that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul, Acts 23.12. Though it had not been an impious conspiracy, it would still have been intolerably presumptuous, as subjecting the life and death of a man to their own power. Thus Jephthah suffered for his folly, when with precipitate fervor he made a rash vow, Judges 11.30. Of this class, the first place of insane audacity belongs to celibacy. Priests, monks, and nuns, forgetful of their infirmity, are confident of their fitness for celibacy. But by what oracle have they been instructed that the chastity which they vow to the end of life they will be able through life to maintain? They hear the voice of God concerning the universal condition of mankind. It is not good that the man should be alone. Genesis 2.18. They understand, and I wish they did not feel, that the sin remaining in us is armed with the sharpest stings. How can they presume to shake off the common feelings of their nature for a whole lifetime, seeing the gift of continence is often granted for a certain time, as occasion requires? In such perverse conduct, they must not expect God to be their helper. Let them rather remember the words, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6.16. But it is to tempt the Lord to strive against the nature implanted by him, and to spurn his present gifts, as if they did not appertain to us. This they not only do, 
but marriage, which God did not think it unbecoming his majesty to institute, which he pronounced honorable in all, which Christ our Lord sanctified by his presence, and which he gained to honor with his first miracle, they presume to stigmatize as pollution. So extravagant are the terms in which they eulogize every kind of celibacy. As if in their own life they did not furnish a clear proof that celibacy is one thing and chastity another. This life, however, they most impudently style angelical, thereby offering no slight insult to the angels of God, to whom they compare whoremongers and adulterers, and something much worse and fouler still. And, indeed, there is here very little occasion for argument, since they are abundantly refuted by fact. For we plainly see the fearful punishments with which the Lord avenges this arrogance and contempt of his gifts from overweening confidence. More hidden crimes I spare through shame. What is known of them is too much. Beyond all controversy, we ought not to vow anything which will hinder us in fulfilling our vocation, as if the father of a family were to vow to leave his wife and children and undertake other burdens, or one who is fit for a public office should, when elected to it, vow to live private. But the meaning of what we have said as to not despising our liberty may occasion some difficulty if not explained. Wherefore, understand it briefly thus. Since God has given us dominion over all things, and so subjected them to us that we may use them for our convenience, we cannot hope that our service will be acceptable to God if we bring ourselves into bondage to external things, which ought to be subservient to us. I say this because some aspire to the praise of humility for entangling themselves in a variety of observances from which God for good reason wished us to be entirely free. Hence, if we would escape this danger, let us always remember that we are by no means to withdraw from the economy which God has appointed in the Christian Church. 4. I come now to my third position. That is, that if you would approve your vow to God, the mind in which you undertake it is of great moment. For seeing that God looks not to the outward appearance, but to the heart, the consequence is that according to the purpose which the mind has in view, the same thing may at one time please and be acceptable to him, and at another be most displeasing. If you vow abstinence from wine, as if there were any holiness in so doing, you are superstitious. But if you have some end in view which is not perverse, no one can disapprove. Now, as far as I can see, there are four ends to which our vows may be properly directed. Two of these, for the sake of order, I refer to the past and two to the future. To the past belong vows by which we either testify our gratitude toward God for favors received, or, in order to deprecate his wrath, inflict punishment on ourselves for faults committed. The former, let us, if you please, call acts of thanksgiving, the latter, acts of repentance. Of the former class, we have an example in the tithes which Jacob vowed, Genesis 28.20, if the Lord would conduct him safely home from exile, and also in the ancient peace offerings which pious kings and commanders, when about to engage in a just war, vowed that they would give if they were victorious 
or at least if the Lord would deliver them when pressed by some greater difficulty. Thus are to be understood all the passages in the Psalms which speak of vows. Psalm 22-26, and 18. Similar vows may also be used by us in the present day whenever the Lord has rescued us from some disaster or dangerous disease or other peril. For it is not abhorrent from the office of a pious man thus to consecrate a votive offering to God as a formal symbol of acknowledgement that he may not seem ungrateful for his kindness. The nature of the second class, it will be sufficient to illustrate merely by one familiar example. Should anyone, from gluttonous indulgence, have fallen into some iniquity, there is nothing to prevent him, with the view of chastising his intemperance, from renouncing all luxuries for a certain time, and in doing so, from employing a vow for the purpose of binding himself more firmly. And yet I do not lay down this as an invariable law to all who have similarly offended. I merely show what may be lawfully done by those who think that such a vow will be useful to them. Thus, while I hold it lawful so to vow, I at the same time leave it free. 5. The vows which have reference to the future tend partly, as we have said, to render us more cautious, and partly to act as a kind of stimulus to the discharge of duty. Man sees that he is so prone to a certain vice, that in a thing which is otherwise not bad, he cannot restrain himself from forthwith falling into evil. He will not act absurdly in cutting off the use of that thing for some time by a vow. If, for instance, one should perceive that this or that bodily ornament brings him into peril, yet allured by cupidity he eagerly longs for it, what can he do better than by throwing a curb upon himself, that is, imposing the necessity of abstinence? free himself from all doubt. In like manner, should one be oblivious or sluggish in the necessary duties of piety, why should he not, by forming a vow, both awaken his memory and shake off his sloth? In both, I confess there is a kind of tutelage, but inasmuch as they are helps to infirmity, they are used not without advantage by the ignorant and imperfect. Hence we hold that vows which have respect to one of these ends, especially in external things, are lawful, provided they are supported by the approbation of God, are suitable to our calling, and are limited to the measure of grace bestowed upon us. 6. It is not now difficult to infer what view on the whole ought to be taken of vows. There is one vow common to all believers, which, taken in baptism, we confirm and as it were, sanctioned by our catechism, and partaking of the Lord's Supper. For the sacraments are a kind of mutual contracts, by which the Lord conveys his mercy to us, and by it eternal life, while we, in our turn, promise him obedience. The formula, or at least substance of the vow is, that renouncing Satan we bind ourselves to the service of God, to obey his holy commands and no longer follow the depraved desires of our flesh. It cannot be doubted that this vow, which is sanctioned by Scripture, nay, is exacted from all the children of God, is holy and salutary. There is nothing against this in the fact 
that no man in this life yields that perfect obedience to law which God requires of us. This stipulation being included in the covenant of grace, comprehending forgiveness of sins and the spirit of holiness, the promise which we there make is combined both with entreaty for pardon and petition for assistance. It is necessary, in judging of particular vows, to keep the three former rules in remembrance. From them any one will easily estimate the character of each single vow. Do not suppose, however, that I so commend the vows which I maintain to be holy that I would have them made every day. For though I dare not give any precept as to time or number, yet if any one will take my advice, he will not undertake any but what are sober and temporary. If you are ever and anon launching out into numerous vows, the whole solemnity will be lost by the frequency, and you will readily fall into superstition. If you bind yourself by a perpetual vow, you will have great trouble and annoyance in getting free, or, worn out by length of time, you will at length make old to break it. 7. It is now easy to see under how much superstition the world has labored in this respect for several ages. One vowed that he would be abstemious, as if abstinence from wine were in itself an acceptable service to God. Another bound himself to fast, another to abstain from flesh on certain days, which he had vainly imagined to be more holy than other days. Things much more boyish were vowed, though not by boys. For it was accounted great wisdom to undertake votive pilgrimages to holy places, and sometimes to perform the journey on foot or with the body half-naked, that the greater merit might be acquired by the greater fatigue. These and similar things, for which the world has long bustled with incredible zeal, if tried by the rules which we formerly laid down, will be discovered to be not only empty and nugatory, but full of manifest impiety. Be the judgment of the flesh what it may, there is nothing which God more abhors than fictitious worship. To these are added pernicious and damnable notions. Hypocrites, after performing such frivolities, thinking that they have acquired no ordinary righteousness, placing the substance of piety in external observances, and despising all others who appear less careful in regard to them. 8. It is of no use to enumerate all the separate forms. But as monastic vows are held in great veneration, because they seem to be approved by the public judgment of the church, I will say a few words concerning them. And, first, lest anyone defend the monachism of the present day on the ground of the long prescription, it is to be observed that the ancient mode of living in monasteries was very different. The persons who retired to them were those who wished to train themselves to the greatest austerity and patience. The discipline practiced by the monks then resembled that which the Lacedaemonians are said to have used under the law of Lycurgus. And it was even much more rigorous. They slept on the ground, their drink was water, their food bread, herbs and roots, their chief luxuries oil and pulse. From more delicate food and care of the body they abstained. These things might seem hyperbolical were they not vouched by experienced eyewitnesses as Gregory Nazianzen, Basil, and Chrysostom. By such rudimentary training, 
they prepared themselves for greater offices. For of the fact that monastic colleges were then a kind of seminaries of the ecclesiastical order, both those whom we lately named are very competent witnesses. They were all brought up in monasteries, and thence called to the episcopal office, as well as several other great and excellent men of their age. Augustine also shows that in his time the monasteries were wont to furnish the church with clergy, for he thus addresses the monks of the island of Capri, quote, We exhort you, brethren, in the Lord, to keep your purpose and persevere to the end. And if at any time our mother church requires your labor, you will neither undertake it with eager elation, nor reject it from the blandishment of sloth, but with meek hearts obey God. You will not prefer your own ease to the necessities of the church. Had no good men been willing to minister to her when in travail, it would have been impossible for you to be born. End quote. He is speaking of the ministry by which believers are spiritually born again. In like manner, he says to Aurelius, quote, It is both an occasion of lapse to them and a most unbecoming injury to the clerical order if the deserters of monasteries are elected to the clerical warfare since from those who remain in the monastery our custom is to appoint to the clerical office only the better and more approved. Unless, perhaps, as the vulgar say, a bad chorister is a good symphonist. So, in like manner, it will be jestingly said of us, a bad monk is a good clergyman. There will be too much cause for grief if we stir up monks to such ruinous pride and deem the clergy deserving of so grave an affront seeing that sometimes a good monk scarcely makes a good clerk. He may have sufficient continence, but be deficient in necessary learning. End quote. From these passages, it appears that pious men were wont to prepare for the government of the church by monastic discipline, that thus they might be more apt and better trained to undertake the important office. Not that all attained to this object, or even aimed at it, since the great majority of monks were illiterate men, those who were fit were selected. 9. Augustine, in two passages in particular, gives a portraiture of the form of ancient monasticism. The one is in his book De Morbis Ecclesica Catholica, on the manners of the Catholic Church, where he maintains the holiness of that profession against the calumnies of the Manichees the other in a treatise entitled De Opera Maricorum, on the work of monks, where he inveighs against certain degenerate monks who had begun to corrupt that institution. I will here give a summary of what he there delivers, and, as far as I can, in his own words. Quote, Despising the allurements of this world, and congregated in common for a most chaste and most holy life, they pass their lives together spending their time in prayer, reading and discourse, not swollen with pride, not turbulent through petulance, not livid with envy. No one possesses anything of his own. No one is burdensome to any man. They labor with their hands in things by which the body may be fed, and the mind not withdrawn from God. The fruit of their labor they hand over to those whom they call deans. Those deans, disposing of the whole with great care, render an account to one whom they call father. These fathers, who are not only of the purest morals, but most distinguished for divine learning, and noble in all things, without any pride, consult those whom they call their sons. 
though the former have full authority to command and the latter a great inclination to obey at the close of the day they assemble each from his cell and without having broken their fast to hear their father and to the number of three thousand at least he is speaking of egypt and the east they assemble under each father then the body is refreshed so far as suffices for safety and health every one curbing his concupiscence so as not to be profuse in the scanty and very mean diet which is provided thus they not only abstain from flesh and wine for the purpose of subduing lust but from those things which provoke the appetite of the stomach and go it more readily from seeming to some as it were more refined in this way the desire of exquisite dainties in which there is no flesh is wont to be absurdly and shamefully defended any surplus after necessary food and the surplus is very great from the labor of their hands and the frugality of their meals is carefully distributed to the needy the more carefully that it was not procured by those who distribute for they never act with the view of having abundance for themselves but always act with the view of allowing no superfluity to remain with them End quote. afterwards describing their austerity of which he had himself seen instances both at milan and elsewhere he says quote, meanwhile no one is urged to austerities which he is unable to bear no one is obliged to do what he declines nor condemned by the others whom he acknowledges himself too weak to imitate for they remember how greatly charity is commended they remember that to the pure all things are pure titus one fifteen wherefore all their vigilance is employed not in rejecting kinds of food as polluted but in subduing concupiscence and maintaining brotherly love they remember meats for the belly and the belly for meats etc first corinthians six thirteen many however strong abstain because of the weak and many this is not the cause of action they take pleasure in sustaining themselves on the meanest and least expensive food hence the very persons who in health restrain themselves decline not in sickness to use what their health requires many do not drink wine and yet do not think themselves polluted by it for they most humanely cause it to be given to the more sickly and to those whose health requires it and some who foolishly refuse they fraternally admonish lest by vain superstition they sooner become more weak than more holy thus they sedulously practice piety while they know that bodily exercise is only for a short time charity especially is observed their food is adapted to charity their speech to charity their dress to charity their looks to charity they go together and breathe only charity they deem it as unlawful to offend charity as to offend god if anyone opposes it he is cast out and shunned if anyone offends it he is not permitted to remain one day End quote. since this holy man appears in these words to have exhibited the monastic life of ancient times as in a picture i have thought it right to insert them here though somewhat long because i perceived that i would be considerably longer if i collected them from different writers however compendious i might study to be end of section twenty four